uh, council. We are good to go. Sorry to interrupt. And Madam Clerk, just looking around. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the November 16th, 2022 QPSC. Let's start off with a roll call, please, Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. And I don't see Trustee Jensen yet. Oh, there she is. She's coming in right now. So I'm going to mark her as being present. Wonderful. So we'll welcome Trustee Jensen on her last meeting. So uh, for, for those of you who are new to the meeting and those of you who are old in the meeting, we always start out with a discussion of our purpose of the QPSC. So here goes. Uh, the QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. That's our, our charter. We'll stick by it while, while that is still currently our charter. And um, that's the theme for which we set up the evening. So with that, uh, let's, uh, Madam Clerk, is there any public comment for us? No, sir. No public comment. All right. With that, we'll go into uh, uh, our, our open session uh, agenda item A. This is our, our, our article discussion. Um, I think we're sticking on a theme which is deeply important to this organization, which is actually the outer rotunda, as our CEO likes to describe it as. Um, this article was entitled Combating Structural Racism Locally and Nationally, a blueprint for progress on health equity. The author, uh, the, the authors on these articles are are two big names in, in this consideration. First is Dr. Susan Ehrlich, um, who's the CEO of San Francisco General. She's also a graduate of the CHCN Fellowship Program. I see a couple of those people in the room, and she was just recently here on a visit and uh, got to have a little walk around our 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 health system. And also, of course, Dr. Bruce Siegel, who's been doing this work a long time. He is a physician and this president and CEO of uh, America's Essential Hospital. So this is sort of just like one of those nice, uh, if you will, springboards uh, for discussion. I'm going to uh, kind of step back and open this up for dialogue. I, I, I think uh, I got a comment from Dr. Swift on a, on a different line. I see she's in the room. Of course, Trustee Banerjee, uh, uh, is, is has notable comments on this 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 line of discussion, Trustee Esteen, and I see Dr. Tornabene who also have. So I'm going to open this up with Dr. Swift, and then give it to Trustee Banerjee, then Trustee Esteen, then tr uh, Dr. Tornabene. Thank you so much. Uh, I I didn't have any prepared comments, but um, I just so appreciate the opportunity to comment on this article. Um, I love this article. Um, I, I have so many thoughts. I'll just rapid fire share them. You know, equity is so important. There's so many aspects. Um, as I continue my equity journey, I'm continually humbled by how many different considerations there are. Uh, and that's really hard to hold sometimes in direct patient care, in my clinic, um, in my work on um, process, you know, improving processes. Um, that must be so difficult um, for many operational leaders, particularly if, as we head into some seasonal expectations like, you know, an increased census in the winter. But what I love about this article, it felt like, um, and definitely the first part of it, a prescription. 
Um, this could literally be turned into a checklist. If nothing else, uh, hospitals, not even healthcare systems, but healthcare systems could literally follow this checklist. Um, I love this because one, this is an article by the CEO and we heard uh, from UCLA and others in our racial equity collaborative that when the CEO says something's done, people do it. Two, um, you know, I don't know if Dr. Ehrlich talks about it here or in the webinar that accompanies this, you know, their executive team sat down and described, wow, do we really know how to attend to equity? And really described that they needed to be intentional. Three, uh, the idea of embedding it into their central performance improvement committee and having a simple checklist similar to the equity, it's a little bit more simple than our equity assessment tool that we are developing, um, but really embedded in into the center of performance improvement and then had a committee where there was accountability and preparation. They weren't bringing people there to shame and blame them about who's not working on equity. They actually prepared them and set people up for success. And if you haven't seen it, the their COO, I think Andrea Turner, um, describes the logistical details that back this article up. They describe that I took away that seven years ago, like us, they had like a 25 person heady committee. Um, and then as increasingly equity considerations were built into their standard work, that committee shrank and become, in, became increasingly efficient. Um, so I love this article because um, it's a short article. It has very practical, doable um, activities. And, and personally, I feel that we are on our journey and we should, what's our article gonna look like next year? Um, what are we going to say at America's Essential Hospitals? Which webinars are we going to put together about how our leadership came together and was thinking about what we need to do? And then what did we hardwire? So thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Schliff. Trustee Banerjee, then Trustee Esteen, then Dr. Tornabene. I always go first, and I wanted to say that our trustee Esteen has been an employee of UCSF, right? Haven't you? So maybe, uh, you know, as, as someone who has worked there and seen, uh, I would let you go first, but I always have a lot to say. But uh, please, I, I defer to you. Well, I thank you. I'm actually employed by San Francisco General directly, not by UCSF. And some of the, the things that are mentioned in this article uh, I worked on. I worked on the SOGI initiative and was a, a trainer who was trained to be a train the trainer person. Um, I know very well firsthand about disparities in uh, violent violence and uh, in our psych units. And the behavioral emergency response team was created um, as a result of some of the work that I also was advocating for. And I think that. Those are just two examples. They talk about cardiology, they talk about disparities in outcomes. And I think that that is the biggest piece in equity, that it has to really uh, be, uh, to use your phrase that you often say, uh, Trustee Banerjee, a through line. It has to be everywhere. And everyone has to be dedicated to it and also given the resources needed to implement. When, when SOGI was rolled out, there were like 50 trainers who went all through the system. There was documentation that every single staff person had to touch and learn how to use. And, and 
it's uncomfortable to ask people questions that you've never asked before. And that may trigger everyone, but folks were handled, I think, very gently so that they could learn how to implement these new tools. And, you know, just as examples of how dedicated the, the effort was, I think I would love to see what the paper looks like next year, Dr. Swift. I think that's a fantastic challenge. And as we deepen into culture shift and spreading the heady work from a, a committee of individuals into a system where everyone is dedicated to equity, I think we'll see drastic change as well. Thanks, Trustee Esteem. Trustee Thank Banerjee, then Dr. Tornabene. Yeah, I mean, so many good things, but all, everything that Dr. Swift and uh, Trustee Esteem have said and the necessity for it to be like top down, bottom up, sideways, like every single level has to like have buy-in into this process. And especially like when the uh, our leaders are champions and like vocal, be able to articulate this a vision and uh, you know beyond a, a performative state, it is it makes such a difference because one thing. Um, you know, uh, learned from hard knocks is that uh, uh, people of color, leaders of color and communities of color can see through the BS very quickly when you speak about it, but really don't resource it very much. So I think what this kind of this prescription of an AEIH is also all of those is that you need to resource this, you need to like have dedicated, you know, time and space made for this and then to be able to normalize it and then operationalize it. I think that is, there's a very, um, especially with, uh, and none of this is new. We've had the evidence for so long, but we know that we face headwinds in doing this. Like, what is it that makes us hesitate to disaggregate data? What is it that makes us hesitate to adopt standard work? Like what are some of those barriers and challenges? Because sometimes there's a knowing doing gap. So there's this um, AMA article um, on ethics, which says, um, this is this, I, I wanted to add a quote from that. It says that, are we willing to truly address racism as a root cause of health disparities? Or are we merely engaging with it in the downstream consequences. And I think what this really talks about is how do we maintain this as an upstream, um, as much upstream as we can. And, uh, you know, we know how this is, uh, racism is embedded in medical science, embedded in medical science in the way that we use race um, <clears throat> based uh, assessment. Uh, you know, we've just like our Jedi committee has talked about how we will be eliminating that. But just think about the coefficients we use. Think about the variables we use for kidney function, GFR, like, you know, like we have all of the many ways. And it's so baked into the uh, into the way we practice that it really needs very intentional effort for to identify it and to um, to address it. There's one more thing that I felt like nobody could say this better. So it says race-based medicine violates basic principles of scientific integrity, including the need for variables to be discrete, unique, and measurable. As a social construct, race defines these criteria and is, inst and is instead arbitrary, 
fluid and unquantifiable as immigration into marriage and mixed race populations have eroded some of the racial boundaries in social science. Research has repeatedly shown that racial identity fluctuates on an individual race basis. It is a social construct. And so I think just understanding, like really hardwiring that into us is, is the first space. And the last thing I'll say is the intersectionality part of it is so important. You said race and surgery, real, uh, you know, and um, we've heard in our boardroom folks talking about, so like when you talk about racism, do you not think about like older people? Do you not think about people with disabilities? And it is all intersectional in the sense we lead explicitly with race, but never exclusively because gender and class and ability and age and all intersect to create more barriers. So I think for us to understand um, race-based and also the intersectionalities of how some of these, you know, really exacerbate the marginalizations. Stop that. <clears throat> Thanks, Trustee Banerjee. Dr. Tornabene? Uh, it's so hard to follow all these comments. I mean, so such great reflections. Um, the one thing that I wanted to add, uh, which is really also coming at it from an improvement science is something that Dr. Swift just said, which is on checklists, that, that, that this is essentially a checklist and we know that we reduce harm in healthcare by, by, system, by systematizing the interventions in order to reduce harm. And so it's, it's like the toolkit that was developed by our HETI, um, you know, our, our HETI committee is around how do we turn that action into this toolkit, this checklist that we do every single time, just like we do a timeout, just like we do checklists when patients are, are being admitted to the hospital and we go through all of their admission checklists, um, that I was really struck by that term, that, that maybe that's something that we need to, to dive into a little bit more, that this is our equity checklist and this is about reducing harm. Thanks, Dr. Tornabene. Yeah, in closing, I'll agree with that. Anyone who knows Dr. Ehrlich knows that She's a lean black, I believe she's a lean black belt, but she believes in the lean and she believes in checklists. So three checklists that that, that popped up right at the top of the essay. Number one, in, in, uh, three core principles. One, ensuring accurate data. They called it real data, race, ethnicity, and language. They were committed to extensive training for registration staff so they would be able to achieve a near 100% accuracy. So my question is, what is our, what is our, and, and not for anyone to answer, it's, it's, it's a rhetorical question. Have we done that? Have we ensured 100% accuracy of data acquisition on this? Because without that data, we're sort of flying partially blind. The second point, core principle, she said developing and educating the workforce, learning events for staff, but also measuring how many learning events did they do, putting that on a dashboard, making that a commitment of the organization. I know we have lots of learning that we have, which occurs, uh, you know, organically, and we have, but I think putting measure to what we do is, is also important. Her third point was identifying and reducing health disparities among patients by really inspiring each of the departments to really find their own quality measure. She said at the beginning of this project, 27% of the departments actually voluntarily identified a metric. When they rolled this learning out, when they rolled this real data out, they were able to achieve 51%. And of course, their goal is there to get 100%. So uh, my question is, how do we how do we get our departments to 
do this. After I read this article, I was inspired. I didn't even know how to get the data. So I had to relearn how to use something called slicer dicer in Epic, for those of you who know that. So I've now identified in 2022, to date, 53.7% of those who've gone to the GI, I'm speaking as a GI chief, 53.7% of those who've gone to the GI clinic are either African-American or Latino. So that's a great measure that we've had, it, and which feels right, but actually putting a quant on it is a different thing. And, and I think that that is sort of like, uh, I think this is opportunity for each of us as we sort of consolidate that. Her last quote uh, that I'll pull out was, uh, she said the following, or they said the following, this progress on health equity has gone hand in hand with controversy. It requires persistence, tolerance, and embracing respectful discord. And it sounds like they've they they've done a they've been a great model for for navigating this. Of course, nothing is perfect, but uh, I'll I'll end by uh, following up on uh, Dr. Swift's opening statements. I look forward to our own presentation in our own article on this in a year or so. So that would be great. So with that, I'll close item A if that's acceptable for everybody. I'm sort of running okay on time, one minute behind. Uh, apologies, um, there actually was a, uh, uh, a request for a public comment. There was one, uh, we just caught it, so we'll give space to that uh, public comment. Madam Clerk, I believe Deshaun Hickman, is, is that correct? Correct. Mr. Hickman, are you in the room? Hi, yes, sir. Mr. Hickman, thank you and welcome. Our, our, our uh, guidance for public speakers are three minutes on the clock. And just to remind you, uh, the trustees aren't allowed to respond to, 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 to public comment, but know that we're receiving it, okay? Yep, thank you. Uh, you're um, on the clock, sir. Good evening, everyone. I'm Deshaun Hickman. I'm a third year emergency medicine resident at Highland a committee of interns and residents, CIR, Northern California Regional Vice President, and I'm a member of the Highland Resident Bargaining Team. As this committee is aware, we're currently in the midst of contract negotiations. Um, this is not a comment on the substance of those negotiations, but a logistical issue that's causing some distress that we would like to bring to your attention. Um, the Alameda Health Systems Negotiation Team just informed us this Monday, um, November 14th, that they do not have the authority to bargain with us, as our last at our last conversation with them, um, they have not communicated a plan to ask for a special meeting of the Board of Trustees to get that authority prior to your January 2023, 2023 meeting. Our contract expires at the end of this month, November 30th. They're asking us to go two months without counters to our economic proposals. Um, we've sent them almost all of our economic proposals except for two very low cost proposals um, by our third meeting, which was on October 18th only three weeks after our first bargaining session, which was also delayed due to Alameda Health Systems not being prepared to start negotiations. We're especially confused because it appears CIR negotiations were on the agenda at last week's closed session of the board. We're asking the board to hold a special meeting as soon as possible so Alameda Health Systems negotiation team can get authority from you to bargain with us by mid-December so that we can continue to move forward with our contract negotiations. I understand that this is a subcommittee, but we're desperately trying to get in front of you so that we can communicate what's happening. And this is only one of two remaining scheduled board meetings for this year. I'm also happy to meet to clarify our concerns. Um, you all can reach out to me. My email is my first name, Deshawn, D-A-S-H-A-W-N, dot my middle initial A, dot Hickman, H-I-C-K-M-A-N, at gmail.com. 
My cell phone number is 203-873-8344. can also feel free to reach out to our CIR organizer, Zach Weinstein, who can be reached at his first initial Z, last name W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N at C-I-R-S-E-I-U.org. Thank you for your time. Dr. Hickman, thank you very much for your time. Um, all feedback is a gift, right, trustees? Um, so uh, thank you for your, your comment. Um, with that, we will uh, close out the open session uh, public comment. We've com completed item A. Going into item B, um, all the elements uh, of... Apologies. Trustees, the consent agenda is before you. Um, uh, I believe there is um, from staff a comment on one of the uh, uh, policies and procedures. I see Dr. Joshi is in the room. I'm going to allow her to make that comment before potentially entertaining a motion to approve the uh, consent agenda in entirety, if that's acceptable. Is that acceptable, trustees? Good evening, Dr. Joshi. Good evening. Thank you so much to allow me to just make some clarifying comments. This is with regard to the Code 3 bleed alert. Um, we had to make some changes, and the changes were to just reflect that this alert is for both Alameda and San Leandro Hospital. And the original draft was for Alameda Hospital only. Uh, the other thing is to just be very specific in the language that this is called Code 3 bleed alert. And that reflects our movement towards standardization as a system of what is a code versus what is an alert. Um, for those of you, an alert is not system-wide and this is not system-wide because it pertains to Alameda Hospital and San Leandro Hospital. Uh, the last change that was made is that lab requisition in the appendix was revised to indicate that it is an example. And the reason that that is an example is that each lab uh, needs to, each campus will need to have their own individualized lab requisition to meet federal regulations around lab requisitions. So happy to have uh, enter, uh, answer any questions, but those were the reasons why those changes were made. Thank you. Dr. Joshi, thank you very much. Trustees, as a reminder, this is uh, in item Bravo 2, the B2 policies and procedure. This was the ninth of the, of, of the procedures. Uh, policies and procedures. Are, does any, do trustees have any questions of Dr. Joshi on her comments that she made? Not from me. Trustee Esteen? None from me either. Is Trustee Jensen in the room? I'm not seeing. Is On some camera. Hi, I'm here. Oh, hi, hi Trustee Jensen. Okay, any, any questions, uh, Trustee Jensen? No, thank you. Okay. Um, Council, are there any revisions to uh, an approval for consent or we can accept it given those comments that she that uh, Dr. Joshi made? You'd accept them with the changes that uh, she has made. I, I'm not sure. Uh, Rana, did we make the change? Is it updated? Is the document updated or is it the same? It is updated in Board Vantage and there is also a copy of it on the website. Thank okay. you. No need to, you can take it as is. Yes, sir. Uh, given that, trustees, may I entertain a motion to appro approve the entirety of the consent agenda, items B1 through B4? I'll move. I'll second. Thank you. Madam Clerk, roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Jensen. 
Aye. The motion passes. Thank you very much, everybody. With that, we close out item B and we go into item C. This is our, our direct communication with our medical staff leaders. We, of course, hear uh, from Dr. Joshi. I'll probably call on her to continue with the theme first. Uh, from Alameda Hospital, Dr. Zali from the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee, and then Dr. Irina Williams. Dr. Joshi, you mind uh, giving us a repeat performance? Yes, and I'm sorry because I'm trying to change the channel for my kids and they might get a little unruly because uh, uh, nothing, like, no, nothing like unruly kids. Would you like to go to uh, trustee, I mean, a doctor of Zali or Dr. Williams? I think for the sake of the board, that would probably be okay. And I'm very sorry for that. Thank D you. Don't, don't apologize. What are you trying to change the channel to? Go, go Spidey on Disney Plus. Okay. Well, I mean, that's worth it. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, let's go with Dr. Afzali if he's in the room. Hi, yes. Good I evening, am here. Sir. Good evening, everyone. Uh, San Leandro Leadership Committee report uh, update from November. Um, the committee met this month. Uh, first and foremost, we had uh, we heard uh, updates about uh, pediatric behavior health uh, patients in the emergency department. We've had a couple of uh, patients who have been delayed. Uh, uh, with transfers to Willow Rock, who is uh, unrelated to AHS. Um, and there were uh, some concerns from the physicians and uh, providers about uh, the transfer process and ambiguity in accepting patients. Uh, with help from uh, the uh, psychiatry team, uh, specifically Dr. Siddhartha, uh, there were, there's been clarification of that process now, and as well as a clearer um, path of escalation to uh, Alameda County Behavior Health, as well as the UCSF STARS team that helps uh, manage Willow Rock. Um, I, I anticipate there will be continued uh, sort of challenges with uh, pediatric behavioral health as there's challenges with uh, behavioral health and psychiatry uh, in general, um, but at least this is a step in the, in the, in the right direction. Uh, the second item uh, relating to quality on my report uh, is a report from our community nephrologists uh, who have undertaken an effort uh, relating to non-catheter dialysis. And this is essentially an attempt to improve uh, uh, access or dialysis uh, uh, initiation in patients uh, that need it uh, without having to place catheters uh, in veins uh, that are prone to infections and in the long run, hopefully reduce the number of admissions for emergent dialysis as well. Uh, the third item is uh, ongoing work relating to um, uh, codes in the PACU. Uh, this was presented for consensus and will likely come through the MEC and the board uh, sometimes in uh, January or February as a final, as a final product. Um, Relating to sustainability, my fourth item on, on my report, uh, imaging services. Um, uh, we've mainly focused on the CT uh, as well as the construction that's anticipated to end in 2023. This past week, we had uh, uh, trouble with our x-ray machine and uh, essentially the in-house x-ray went down and for a couple of days, there was a bit of anxiety about um, x-rays uh, being done through a single portable unit. Uh, there was a good effort undertaken by the radiology team. There's now a second mobile x-ray unit that's functional at San Leandro um, with an anticipated uh, uh, completion date for an, uh, the in-house unit to be completed the first week of January. Um, 
and you know, I'm going to hold my breath until that first week of January and hope that we don't have any trouble with the two portable units. Um, but initially, the, there was uh, just one unit and that, that created a lot of anxiety. And now there are two, so there's there's some sigh of relief. Um, the uh, uh, fifth item on, on that on that uh, uh, report um, uh, relates to metrics that I presented to the general board, uh, and, it, and it essentially highlights the increases at San Leandro and Alameda. Um, and I, I've, I've highlighted these because I want to showcase the community sites as, as having uh, a significant increase in volume from last year. That's not just the acute visits, but also uh, has stayed stable with admissions and that this is where a lot of uh, uh, activity is happening and a lot of good progress. And uh, I want to continue to underline that for the community sites um, as we uh, work through challenges such as uh, the imaging uh, relating to CT and X-ray. Um, and that is the end of my report. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you for your report, Dr. Fasali. Trustee is opening up questions. I think I saw, uh, I saw Banerjee and then Esteem. Yeah. Um, thank you. In your report, you had said that you were waiting, like probably hoping to get the second portable on a loaner basis. So is this the X-ray portable X-ray of Fazali on a loaner basis? Because so is this something that is again on loan and which might have to go back and forth between the two facilities? I just wanted to ask because I know that in the full board meeting we have been talking about the capital yes. uh, unspent capital a budget that we have. And I just wonder, I don't know how much portable X-ray machines cost and there will be, you know, a, the PET scan that is being built and a proper thing that is happening. But is there some, some worth in having a backup to a backup there so that it's not kind of pinging between one system to another? And um, I don't know who will answer that question, but I wanted to know that. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. This, this was actually an older machine that was non-functional, that was uh, that was repaired and put back into into service. Uh, there were some uh, trouble. There was some trouble with getting the loaner from Highland, uh, so that that did not look like it was going to happen in a in a timely fashion, and it was uh, quicker to get another unit fixed. Uh, it was done, and there was a physicist review that is expected to take place. Uh, tomorrow or the day after, hopefully before the weekend, uh, to to finalize that fix. And uh, uh, perhaps somebody else on the call could have more information about this. But I think this this X-ray unit will be will be able to stay at San Leandro and, and serve as a backup or or even as a second unit uh, in case there's uh, imaging needs uh, both on the inpatient and the ED, for example, to serve as a portable unit. So it's a second it's a second unit that's uh, specific to San Leandro. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, the pediatric, the behavioral of uh, Willow Rock, um, you know, exclusion criteria, learning about that. I was just wondering that I know that Alameda Hospital is having its readiness for its pediatric readiness survey thing. And so are there ways in which like some of those, you know, that's a much bigger one, but some of those learning so that we could preempt some of these things rather than responding to it. So as you, as Alameda Hospital is prepping for that, 
were there some learnings that can come system wide so that we all know how to you know pre uh, be equipped even though we are not in that survey um the uh, the pediatric readiness survey is actually ongoing at both uh, alameda and san leandro um and uh, uh, dr joshi as well as uh, hodroj uh, from both sides are are involved with that uh, and and this is certainly something we can include in there but the hope uh with working directly with uh, uh, uh alameda county behavioral health as well as the ucsf stars team is to take out some of the subjectivity we felt was there in in some of these transfer requests that we felt were medically indicated and the patients were medically cleared but there were uh, unnecessary or um, unexplained delays uh, that were um sort of uh, interjected either because of their staffing shortages that, that, that was not clear to us. We, we had we had no communication uh, relating to that or understanding. And so we were, we were hoping to take out some of the subjectivity uh, and, and streamline the process um, a little more. But it's certainly something else we can look into. Oh, no, thank you. This is helpful. This is very pertinent. Like this is a specific issue re related to Villorox. So thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Of course. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Esteen, if you'll hold on one second. I think uh, uh, our COO, Mr. Frasky, had his hand up. I didn't know if there was a, I, a response I, to that line of discussion. I did, and then I put it down, um, Dr. Bukat. But let me just add a little more context around, around what Dr. Um, Evzali was saying about X-ray. I believe we have another portable ordered. We have a C-arm ordered. We have a CT scan um, coming up in, in July, and we have the fixed unit coming up in January. Mm -hmm. So help is on the way. I just wanted to provide some context. In the meantime, it is true we're trying to patch it all together, um, but I believe we'll get there. And I appreciate Dr. Efzali and the team and everybody hanging on as we get to where we wanna go. But um, you know, in six months, I hope we don't get another comment about the radiology department at, at San Leandro because I think I think much of it will be fixed. Actually, you do want comment, Mr. COO, about how good it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, with that, thank you, Mr. Prasky. Back to Trustee Asin. Yeah, I I uh, always appreciate these reports because I think. Um, as this health system expanded years ago and acquired San Leandro Hospital, I think the point was to attract more patients. And so that's being accomplished. It's it's kind of marvelous. And also, I can't help but uh, see the very last line in your report, Dr. Afsali, that says, with significantly fewer resources and staff. And so I think we have to make sure that the system keeps up with the demand um, for both budget and also actuals. And, you know, I, as we are the fiduciaries here, I wanna make sure I say that I'm paying attention to that part. You guys are doing great work and we have to make sure we continue to support the, the increases in volume. It's kind of amazing, 8%, 14%, wow. And this is sustained, this is a serious trend. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, trustees. And, and I'm I, I am a little bit biased in 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 in, in that line, uh, but I would uh, uh, I'd be wrong not to acknowledge uh, Alameda's uh, amazing um, sort of contribution to that. San Leandro actually dipped a little bit in July, 
uh, I think because we had some uh, staffing troubles and then we were we were boarding quite a bit in June. Um, and I think that showed in, in July, but it bounced right back up to 10% in September. But Alameda has been consistently increasing in volume. And uh, when, when you're there and working clinically, you, you definitely feel that, that it, that's happening. Agreed. Thank you for your report, Dr. Afzali. I'm gonna go, let's go with Dr. Williams now. And as a reminder for everyone, uh, Dr. Williams has faithfully served the, uh, as chief of staff for the Alameda Health System uh, go, approaching two years now. And this is her last um, official report to us as the chief of staff um, for Alameda Health System. And uh, uh, great appreciation to you for your service, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump to my report. Um, it is somewhat abbreviated um, because the MEC happened this morning and usually we do sort of um, use a lot of information from the MEC um, into, um, and put it in our report. Um, however, I will um, highlight a few points here um, as some of these items were also part of the board report. Um, so as usual, the report is um, sort of grouped by pillars. Um, I cannot stop highlighting our Medical Staff Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, continues its tireless work, um, and we've been meeting monthly, discussing sort of our vision and who we are and what we would like to focus on in our um, DEI work. Um, in addition, all of the members of the committee um, will be exploring options to join the Racial um, Equity Institute training over the next few months um, to, and that training was also sort of um, advertised to a number of other medical staff members, including MEC members and ambulatory leadership, as well as anyone in ambulatory who wants to join. So we're really trying to encourage um, members of the medical staff, as well as anyone within AHS to do this training and um, sort of explore our own biases and see how we can um, deepen our knowledge of ourselves and of racial justice and equity. Um, Medical staff um, ongoing professional practice evaluation process, um, aka OPPE, um, uh, is continuing to be sort of changed and transformed and improved. Um, we are now uh, working on implementation of the static database um, to provide systemic process of, of conducting OPP uh, using data. Um, it's been a long ask of our medical staff services to um, use some sort of robust uh, software and database. So it's exciting to see that uh, this project is finally getting implemented. Um, our HS Professional Standards Committee is continuing to function, and this committee focuses on um, supporting the standards of excellence in provider professionalism while still maintaining just culture approach. Um, each medical staff has this committee, and this sort of has been a joint vision for both medical staffs to implement this committee um, at AHS. Um, some of the patient experience highlights um, some of the goals um, for patient experience include focus on patient centeredness. Uh, and there are some other metrics and some other highlights that are in front of you in the report. Um, in terms of our sustainability pillar, 
um, as I have mentioned at the last board meeting, um, the Department of Anesthesiology is having uh, staffing challenges and Dr. Lang, uh, our chair, has been working tirelessly on recruitment efforts as well as figuring out alternative strategies to uh, for call coverage as well as additional incentives for providers to step in and take additional call, sort of take on that additional workload, especially during the holiday season. So um, I know that um, some of the potential candidates to join our department of anesthesia, which I belong to, um, have been identified. So hopefully we will be coming out of this um, stage over the next few months. And I'm just very grateful for all the efforts of Dr. Lang um, in addressing um, this challenging situation. Um, in addition to date during MEC, we have learned that there were some challenges around um, radiologist recruitment and retention um, that were shared uh, with MEC today. Um, it was um, reassuring to hear that there are also some strategies that have uh, that are being explored around um, sort of matching what is being done in the community in terms of radiologists being able to, to, to do teleradiology, sort of accommodate um, more of a work-life balance that some other health systems and employers are offering. So um, we are exploring that as well. Um, and that concludes my report. I'm open to any questions. Thank you, Dr. Williams. I'll uh, looking around the trustees, seeing any hands up. Trust, uh, Trustee Banerjee. No questions. I wanted to say thank you for your service. And I know we'll see you at QPSC, but thank you so much for all you've done uh, as Chief of Medical Staff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Williams, as you, you know, I, you never get away easy with me, so I'm going to always ask you something good. So as you, as you complete your tenure here, Leave us with some hope. What are your two, what are your one or two most hopeful things about your experience here, uh, leading the med staff for the two, past two years? Well, I have to say there is a huge change, huge positive change from sort of where we started to where we're at right now, and I think um, that is. Um, a, a lot of it can be attributed to our new leadership and our new administration being really supportive and really willing to hear our medical staff, to work with us, to sort of understand what the needs are and sort of um, maybe band-aid some of the previous <laughs> wounds and start fresh in the spirit of transparency, openness, and collaboration. And I think it, it's made a huge difference. Um, and we already see in a cultural shift and relations, re relational shift. And frankly, that type of collaboration has led to um, effectiveness and uh, effective implementation of a lot of projects that's been sort of sitting on a back burner. So that um, medical staff leadership um, uh, collaboration really benefits everyone, and I'm just very grateful that I was a part of that transition and a part of that change. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Hope is good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> um, with that, we uh, thank you for your service and your report, and we'll see you in different uh, different formats later. <laughs> um, um, Dr. Joshi, how are the kids? <laughs> They're placated with TV, so yeah. <laughs> Funny how it works that way. <laughs> I know. Uh, and I apologize for that. No apologies. Uh, they no really apologies. would have come running at the computer. Um, but thank you uh, for time to give my report. 
I'd like to highlight under community um, that really exciting, the Strategic Planning Committee for Alameda Hospital has already met in November. And I think it really brought the important stakeholders together to talk about um, how we move forward for Alameda Hospital, especially since the measure that uh, we had supported it didn't pass, unfortunately, with Governor Newsom. But um, that gives us opportunity to think about what we want Alameda Hospital to be, what does excellence mean, what, what is our role in the system, and um, as it's already been mentioned, our patient volume is increasing and we want to meet it. So how can we strategize best with what Alameda Hospital does incredibly well and how can we continue to move that forward? So the next meeting will be in December and this meeting will also have physician representation, um, which we are, from the MEC perspective, looking forward to being a part of. Under quality, really excited to state that podiatry coverage has now been expanded to Alameda Hospital. This is a big deal. Um, this is effective as of last week, actually. So it's already gone into effect 24-7. We met with Dr. Splitter to understand what exactly coverage means. And it's broad and expansive and it's excellent um, for what our patients need. So we're thrilled to have that. As already been mentioned, pediatric readiness is a survey that's going to be coming in the early spring next year, 2023. And this will be system-wide. So uh, the three acute care hospitals will be surveyed on our readiness for management of pediatric patients, which of course ranges anywhere from newborn up until 18. So we've already had a few meetings under our belt and with our recent rise in pediatric volumes, um, it's actually highlighted other opportunities where we can take the same group and implement positive changes across the system for how we take care of pediatric patients. So most notably, we are we already had pharmacy be a part of our team, but we're even more working with them. Um, and then we've added our information technology with our EPIC team. Also want to highlight that it was recently National Medical Staff Services Week, and they are the group that um, is led by Satir, who helps us to function, helps us with credentialing, and I are a key part of our success and ability to bring on providers and maintain credentialing. Uh, and then I just want to um, say that we had a great presentation by finance at our MEC where we are expanding um, the commercial payers. We're able to expand uh, and allow more of the Alameda community to be able to take advantage of Alameda Hospital. And that concludes my report. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Joshi's report for Alameda Hospital medical staff? Scanning the room, barring none. Uh, doctors, thank you for your presentation as always. The part of, one, of Go For It, Trustee Esteem. Very brief question. I love the commercial payer update. Uh, I don't know if you remember offhand or if someone else can say, is there any kind of estimate for how beneficial that may be? Like, what is the the mix that we think we've been turning away and what we expect may come? I'm not sure, but I do see that Kim Miranda's on. I'm not sure if she's prepared to be able to answer that. This presentation <laughs> came from her team. Well, Whoa. <laughs> I am here. Happy to try to answer that, uh, Tracy. You, re you regret signing on this evening, <laughs> Madam CFO. <laughs> <laughs> No, so our our goal was not to increase volume. In fact, in our primary care, we're at capacity and we can't take more patients. Our desire in doing this was to 
get contracted mostly for our patients and to comply with the No Surprises Act. So um, our patients today, if they, let's say, come for trauma and then need to do follow-up and they try to go to our FQ clinic, they're not, they're not contracted. And then they're getting all of these bills. Uh, and at Alameda, there's a huge history of patients, you know, being contracted with the hospital, but not with the physicians and then getting all these surprise bills. And then we didn't know what to charge the patients because our commercial, commercial payer mix is only about 7% of our business. So we don't, we're not like Sutter who can go into their database and say, ah, you know, on average for Blue Shield, we should charge this amount right? To comply with no surprises and give estimates, but we don't have that data. We don't have that sample size. So by having a contract, we know how to comply with the no surprises act. So, and the other thing that was happening is we were constantly having to have to fight legal battles to get a reasonable payment because um, the payers, we don't have a contract. They're not going to pay us 100% of charges, right? So they'd lowball us. And if we weren't on it and we didn't file the claims and, and start the mediation process, we got nothing. So we had, uh, when I started here, we had 76 claims from 2014 that were sitting in litigation. And we have many more even since then that, you know, that I filed. So we wanted to stop the litigation. And I know that my predecessors had said that, um, you know, that we don't have any leverage for them to contract at reasonable rates. Um, but I think we made the right decision as an organization. We hired Chancellor who has relationships with all of the negotiators with the major payers. And we worked with them and we said, hey, you know, what about your patient experience? You know, let's fix this. And we were, uh, I think, very, very successful. So, yes, we got uh, reasonable rates. I won't, we're, we don't have the same rates that Sutter has, but for our professional, we're about 150% of Medicare, which is a good rate. Uh, Medi-Cal is substantially less than Medicare. Um, and on the hospital side, we made sure we had more than 150% cost coverage on everything. So um, I think we did well. And we, in many cases, we built over three years and we can, you know, keep working them. But we are at least, you know, on the fair market value <laughs> um, chart, right? So we had a, a study done. I didn't have it done. I think maybe Tangerine or somebody did before me. Uh, and we used that study to make sure that we got reasonable rates. So this, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> That's a fantastic I answer. <laughs> Perfect answer. Really glad that we're complying with the law. And we continue to see the trend of higher volumes in our ED in Alameda Hospital. So we need, and Alameda is an island. And the people of Alameda really want the service. And we did not get legislation to extend our earthquake, uh, you know, contingency. So we have to do all kinds of things to make Alameda Hospital do what it does. And we just want to make possible. sure if, if we're going to say we serve all, let's serve all, right? Yeah. <laughs> and make all serve the system, you know, like it's a joint effort. Exactly. Insurance companies shouldn't get away with not making sure they're Thank the you. people that pay premiums get care. They need care. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Trustee Banerjee, then Mr. Jackson. Yeah. 
Thank, thank you so much, Kim. That was just so clarifying. And also to know that never give up, like try, try, you know, instead of thinking that, oh, they'll never, you know, come to the table that, that and we, you know, we've, I think, been on the board long enough to think that sometimes that has been our mindset to think that, you know, with commercial um, insurers. So this is really good to see that uh, keep striving and it, these are good rates and to continue. And so good to know that this is three years. So like, it's not something that annually one has to be renegotiating. Um, and uh, your update, and I wanted to, you know, um, as, uh, for two of the policies over there, uh, two important ones, uh, but also wanted to give a shout out to the medical uh, services staff because the uh, the, well, the medical staff policies and the privilege forms were so clear, so well written, so amazing that in reading that one really understanding. Um, so thank you, Satiras. Thank you, your team, everybody that comes together, coordinates and Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Mr. Jackson, sir. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Chair. I will just say that Kim is modest and I really, I was the CAO for the community-based hospitals when those commercial contracts went away. And I know the angst and the pain. Ken, Kenny kind of alluded to it a moment ago. And um, Kim approached it with a, a different attitude. Why not? And she said it. Our, our mission is to serve all. And so she went at it with a fresh set of eyes and began the process and ultimately was successful in getting those commercial contracts. 7% is not a huge percentage of what we do, but we now have the opportunity to grow it, but now we're legally compliant and we truly are um, able to serve all in a way that we just couldn't previously. And so my hat is off to Kim and her team and I'm grateful for the work. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Any other comment on this section? Thank you doctors for all that. Well, that will close item C. Now item D uh, is a, a standing agenda item. It's our patient safety regulatory affairs and quality True North metric dashboard. What, what was a little hidden in here is the report got a little bit bigger because there is actually a deep dive in here, yet we only have 20 minutes uh, for, for this agenda item. So Ms. Torres, I'm, I'm gonna allow you to navigate this however you can, but that, that, that deep dive quality TNM is sort of a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Uh, on a go forward, let's pull out these deep dives as a separate agenda item from the standing report if we can, just to give ourselves some time. Is that acceptable? You're on mute, Ms. Torres. Hello? Sorry about that. All good. All good. Uh, <laughs> so if you can navigate us through the entire agenda, including the the, the TNM in about 20, that would be great. I will go through the patient safety and regulatory slides really quickly, and then I will hand it over to Annette and to Dr. Mack, who will do the deep dive. I think the patient safety and regulatory, it's sort of standard, um, so we can spend more time on the other. So here we go. So as far as patient safety, we're very happy that our um, 
harm rate is down to 2.9% for fiscal year to date. Um, again, our, our target is below three. Um, when we look at the monthly uh, reports, we can see that for the month of October, we had nine harms, which were level E, which means there was temporary harm to the patient. As we discussed be before, we don't want any harm, but if we're gonna have any, we want to keep them at the E section. So um, we were at 2.1%. Our volume of risk events did go up in, in October, which is exactly what we wanna see. These are our warnings that, you know, there's something amiss and that we might need to look at a hazard and uh, try to mitigate it. So um, we're happy to see that it went up to 460. Um, quickly on the culture of safety, we are at the tail end of the annual um, um, process. So we are at the September to December, which right now, um, all of the action plans that were uh, uh, developed are being implemented and monitored for effectiveness. We did have about 158, I think it was 158 departments that participated. Um, this is our fourth year doing the culture of safety survey. And I think the team has done uh, an excellent job. We are, um, all departments did debrief and all departments turned in an action plan, which is really excellent. Um, there were 15 departments that were called out for having um, really robust action plans to address uh, burnout and teamwork. So those 15 departments were recognized and these are the list of the 15. And James mentioned this at the board, at the board so I will move on. For regulatory affairs, we did have self three self-reported events uh, this month. And there was one uh, joint commission complaint which resulted in a site visit to, uh, to John George. And that occurred earlier this month. Um, and again, the usual slide of recent and upcoming surveys, we have the MTALA and the joint commission uh, survey coming up. So that was a quick overview, but I'll hand it over to Annette Johnson, who is our director of analytics and performance improvement. She'll talk about the True North metrics. And I'll stop sharing. Dr. Tornabene, did you have your hand up? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, just uh, quickly. I'm wondering if uh, due to a um, childcare babysitting issue, if we can get Dr. Mack on first and then have Annette follow. Let, let's do that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good evening, Dr. Mack. Yes, good evening. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, my uh, the babysitter drops off my son at seven, and I figured we didn't want a seven-year-old giving his uh, views about equity. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen him in the background. Pretty cute kid. <laughs> Thank you. So, so no apologies for, for, for that kind of stuff. All right, let's do it. Okay. So, yeah, so I wanted to speak briefly, uh, do a bit of a True North Equity deep dive in our adult patient population. Um, and uh, so I wanted to start off by saying that 
Clearly, reducing racial disparities is a priority within AHS as part of our strategic plan. Um, but we're also seeing our external partners um, and payers taking a um, bigger role in requiring us to address racial disparities. So how we addressed it within our adult population is first looking at adult health maintenance. Um, adult health maintenance metrics that are considered up to date. And that simply means metrics that are that we're at or exceeding goals. And so that was the first cut. When we did the second cut, we saw a different story. We saw that in many areas, our Black and African-American patients lag behind um, um, AHS as a whole. And then we saw that and we decided to take action and thought about the best ways to really close that gap. So these are our adult preventative screenings that we look at. Um, so that's breast cancer, colon cancer, cervical cancer, HIV, and chlamydia screenings. And then depression screening um, with follow-up, tobacco screening and counseling, and influenza flu vaccinations. And again, we bundled this all under one sort of uh, preventative screening health, adult health maintenance. So if you look at the data, overall, we're doing pretty, pretty well. We're actually, we're seeing an uptick. However, if you look at it by race and ethnicity, again, it tells a different story. So our Asian patients are exceeding goal. Um, way above average. Um, our white patients and African-American below average. And then if you look at the, the ethnic ratio of all of our patients, um, again, while our Asian patients are 12% are, are at the hitting the, the metric doing best, our Asian patients are 12% of the pie. And of course, our Hispanic and, and African-American patients make up 60%. So when we, once we race and um, ethnicity stratify, again, we see a bit of a different story. So our breast cancer screenings, um, and this is unfortunately widening between um, our subgroups that are the best in, the, in, in, in completing these screenings and the ones that are lagging the most. So between our Asian um, patients and our African-American patients. We are closing the gap a little bit with our colorectal screening, but it's still pretty pronounced. And then for reasons that we don't yet have a working hypothesis for, we see a switch with our cervical chlamydia and HIV screenings where our African-American patients are actually the best with completing. So how we think about all of our quality metrics as a whole is again, what we're committed to within AHS, but also what 
we're seeing on the state level, on the county level. So DHCS has outlined 50 bold gold measures. And many of those measures, I think is fantastic, but they're based upon race and ethnicity. And with a targeted focus on uh, for these goals by 2025. For our QIP metrics, we're also seeing more financial incentives tied to closing disparity gaps. So in upcoming years, 23, 24, we know that there will be more measures tied um, to equity targets. We don't yet know how many, but we know it's coming. And then health pack right now, one uh, metric tied to um, racial disparities are African-American patients and colorectal screenings. So this, again, is just more of a crosswalk of um, what we track, what we've started tracking by race and ethnicity. And again, this is just a start um, and how it overlaps with QUIP, our bold goals, as excuse me, as well as health pack. So this is, was our strategy, how we're gonna get to point A to B. Well, we first had to identify the, tr the trends. We don't know what we don't know. So we have to hunt and we have to look and we have to see, and again, stratify to make sure that we're not missing something. Um, we then developed PDSAs. Um, on a small scale, on a pilot scale, with our hope to eventually scale and spread throughout our system. So this is now our, our uh, a new version of our dashboard. So yes, you have, you know, where we're again, hitting the metrics near the, or where we are along the percentile, but it's also that breakdown by race and ethnicity. And we're showing sort of the best performance group in purple and the disparity groups in orange. And this to me, like it's shining the light and, and really emphasizing the importance that we have with around health equity for all of our patients. So I love this example. So this shows for our mammograms, um, our no-show rate. So for us to meet this metric, our women have to actually show, uh, show up and, and, and receive the mammogram. So the show rate or the no-show rate is critical there because we can order the tests as PCPs, but we depend on our women to actually then show up. And if you just look over here, it looks like we're doing a great job and we are, our, our no-show rate went down from 26% down to 14% overall. However, if you look among our Black and African-American patients highlighted here in purple, the show rate remained above 55% throughout this entire time. So again, if we just look at uh, the whole as a numbers, again, we think we're doing a good job, we're tackling this problem, when we do the next cut, there's more work to be done.
So our, one of our pilots, our first pilot is um, for colorectal screening among our African-American patients. And this focus intentional screening actually is a great example of how we utilize our community to, to do outreach. So we used, uh, we, we worked with our cancer collaborative, um, which includes patients who are in remission from cancer to see how best can we target African-Americans to get screening. Um, as many of you may know, the screening for colorectal cancer for African-Americans has actually been lowered from, from 50 to 45 years of age. So um, to give a little background, traditionally, a patient has to come in to the clinic get a fit test ordered, someone explains it to them, takes it home. I always, I always say like, doesn't leave it in the car, which I have done, you know, actually does the test, mails off the test or brings it back in. I mean, those are a lot of steps for any of us. So what we did is we took a sample size of 50. And again, although the age is 45, we thought, you know, the 50 plus age who have never had a colorectal um, uh, screening test were at greater risk than those 40, 45 to 49. So um, out of 208 kits that were mailed, seven were returned. And then the other 199 were sent reminder texts. So by week three, 44 of those 199 were returned. 22% completion. And by week five, again, with targeted outreach, targeted reminders, 35% were completed. Now, this 35% is still lower than, than our HS completion rate. However, you know, I look at it as there were 13 lives who may not have gotten a fit test, who were now getting the care and getting the further screening and testing that they need to prevent colon cancer. I am a pediatrician by training and I know this is for adult, but I will be remiss if I don't mention, um, we are also seeing this disparity within our pediatric population. And it is, um, we're, we are closing some of the gaps, but it's still again, pretty pronounced. Um, with things that are key in the in the in our pediatric population, like immunizations, developmental screenings, and our well visits, um, we have started working with First Five, a fantastic community partner, um, to just help us with a needs assessment, learning how we can do again targeted outreach. What are some of the barriers that we just may not know about? to move the needle on our pediatric uh, disparities as well. So that is it. Again, a brief uh, overview. Are there any questions? Thank you, Dr. Mack. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Mack. And I, gosh, like the, bar of data, right? And to dig in and to de and to stratify. So um, really uh, great to hear. And I wanted to know with the cancer collaborative, I know how for um, 
how we have patient navigators and how much is the role of patient navigators in supporting um, patients otherwise who have to do all the work? I, I We are hoping to grow the patient navigator footprint and support. I think patient navigators play a fantastic role and actually are in, in um, discussions right now about how we can, um, patient navigators can help support our patients who come to us through primary care, but that cancer patient who may come to us just through specialty. Thank you. Yeah, I have the you know honor of working with, uh, just being able to hear a little bit about the work that our patient navigator team and Ms. Harper's Annette Harper and uh, others do, and it's invaluable, invaluable work. And I hope oh, absolutely. that moving forward as part of our strategic plan, we resource, we support, we do this work because this is where our the external accountabilities, like from from our partners, are coming in county, state, mm -hmm. alliance, and that we have to see our patients, not just those are assigned to us. We actually have to see them, and so thank you for that. And I'm just. Hearing about the partnership, we are, even though this was an adult, we are thinking about the life course, and so I'm so delighted that you shared about the pediatric <laughs> population and the uh, and the partnership with First Five as well. Like this is really the future where we do a needs assessment and the strengths assessment, and we see what's already happening in the community. Where are where are the strengths? Where are the gaps? Where should we be stepping up? So. Um, Huge thanks. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? Thank, thank you for, for that the deep dive. Oh, oh yes, thank you, Trustee Seen. Great deep dive. Um, with that, um, I'll give it back to Ms. Torres. You got about four minutes left to get us through the rest of the report, if you can. Uh, sorry, I think you were going to give it to. Hand it over. Yes, Annette. Okay. Thank you. Oh, okay. Good evening, hopefully you can see my screen. I'm yes. not getting, okay. So I wanted to point out for our hospital acquired harms, you know, ultimately our goal is zero harms, but at a minimum, we want to decrease our harms by at least 10% this year. And we are on track to meet that minimum goal. And the exciting news here is harms sort of break down into two categories. There are hospital acquired infections, so CLAPSI, CAUTI, MRSA, C. difficile, SSI. And then are um, two types of harms that are reported via the MIDAS safety alerts. Um, system, which is falls and happy. So we are seeing less hospital acquired infections than we have seen in the previous two years. This is very promising start. Um, where we're seeing, so, you know, we had 54 falls in the month of August and 36 of those were, or 54 harms and 36 of those were falls. The good news here is that while there were 36 falls, only one resulted in physical injury. So it is sort of the, the primary place we need to focus our effort. And so Highland is sort of leading the way in that um, with they have played, they are working on a mobility assessments and in a mobility program with the idea being that if we can keep our patients strong during their stay, they're less likely to fall. So I think it's a very exciting um, and innovative initiative that sort of takes us past sort of the traditional fall prevention things that we've tried in the past. Um, we have an opportunity when it comes to hand hygiene, we're not 
we're not hitting our goal yet, and we're nowhere near sort of the national threshold, which is 95% compliance. So to help with this, we're going to really increase our surveillance. Our goal is to get 200 observations per month per unit. To do this, we're going to uh, we're going to implement surveying from a multidisciplinary perspective. We're going to enlist help from everybody, from nurses, from our ancillary services, from food and nutrition, EVS, to get them to collect hand hygiene observations for us. So when we can get a more robust picture of what are the barriers that are preventing us from achieving that hand hygiene compliance. So hopefully that will launch in December. Um, the last sort of infrastructure stuff just clicked into place. <clears throat> For our ambulatory metrics, we're really focused on access for both primary and specialty care. Um, you know, specialty care return. So these are patients that are established. Um, TNA was the only metric on target this month, but there's lots of work underway to really understand um, what are the what are our access barriers. There's a uh, uh, primary care task force that's launching to really look at the root causes, to explore panel management and panel sizes to make sure that we have um, appropriate access and what can we do to maximize that. And then also, as you saw from Dr. Mack's presentation, they're really starting to do um, leverage innovations and technology to increase our access. And one of those is um, we recently launched digital retinal eye exams um, so that we can now perform those outside of optometry and really helping with the optometry backlog and also making it you know, um, safer and better, particularly for our diabetic patients who are at risk for retinal detachment. <clears throat> Readmissions is a really promising story right now. We hit target for August and preliminary data for September indicates that that performance continues to improve. So some of the, the true groundwork that we've been doing over the last couple of years with the, this focus on capturing our patients who are complex care or who have complex diagnosis or high frequent utilizers and getting them into sort of routine sort of supervised programs, really working with our substance abuse patients to get them into substance abuse notification is starting to pay off. So um, hopefully that that trend continues. We Two months in the right direction is not quite, you know, can't quite call it a home run yet, but it's certainly a promising start. I'm going to skip over health maintenance because Dr. Mack did such a great job. For median time to ED, another good story here. We were seeing increased um, time from to decision to admit to inpatient bed, despite the fact that COVID had sort of uh, leaned off, which was the driver for the last two years. This month, we saw that decline. And preliminary data for September and October continues to show that as declining. So we're really truly making um, improvement there. A lot of that has to do with leveraging our transfer center to get patients to the right into the right level of care as fast as possible. And then for patient experience, we are maintaining our performance that we've sort of seen since, since the start of COVID. We have not yet returned, increased or decreased um, from in now that COVID has sort of leaned off. So we really need to start focusing in on our um, initiatives. You know, now that we have uh, less constraints on staffing. I know that nursing is really focusing in on daily rounding, including nurse hourly rounding, as well as leadership rounding, so we can do service recovery. And I know that they are working not only with inpatient nurses, but our ED and our ambulatory teams, that when to get them the data, and when their data isn't where it needs to be, asking them to submit a plan of correction. So what are you going to do to drive patient experience in your area? So I'm hopefully that these will start to pay off in the near future. And did I do it in four minutes, Dr. Timbukes? You, you did a great job. Uh, leave, leave this up for us. I think I see Trustee Banner. Sorry, screen small. Trustee Banner, is your hand up? Okay, got it. Um, 
great job in that team. Also, um, uh, everyone's on small screen. Looking around for any hands up. Ms. Johnson, will you clarify a point of ignorance for me? Um, I'll always have it. I, I, I want to make sure I'm not misinterpreting the legend on, on the far right of the screen. It says orange is the AHS performance and blue is the benchmark. And yeah, sorry, I flipped those around. I apologize. I haven't okay. corrected in future drafts, but okay. the, the blue is our performance, the orange is the benchmark. Got it. Okay. I wanted to make sure I wasn't uh, always happy to show my ignorance. All right. So uh, with that, um, I think we close out this item. Thank you to the quality team for getting us through that. So that closes item D. Um, next, everyone, is item E. It's another report discussion. We're happy to have Christian Rieta in the in the room this evening. He's the System Director of Quality and Outcomes. Uh, hi, Christian. How are you? Hi, good evening. I'm doing uh, well. So the title of this is The Governance of Quality at AHS. I think um, uh, Dr. Tornabene has worked with the quality team to help us understand the complexity of, of, of quality, of navigating quality in our system. It, it flows from all around, from up, down, left, right, and trying to get some semblance and you know, in my vision of this, it should be like a document that we give to anyone that we orient to our system, including new trustees, new employees, to uh, to understand how we navigate quality. Mr. Rieta, sorry to short time you. Do you think you can do this in about 15? Absolutely. Wonderful. I'll be happy to do so. <laughs> and actually, do you mind, um, uh, Dr. Piquet, if I can, I because I, I would love to share just a little bit about Christian. Of course, Dr. Tornman, um, so. Just to <laughs> share, yeah. because I, I, I love um, uh, Christian's story here at Alameda Health Systems. I just wanted to elevate that, that Christian um, has spent 13 years as a registered nurse. Nine of those years has been in work in quality. Um, he started in 2019 at Alameda Health System as a clinical quality manager and then was promoted sequentially to senior clinical quality manager in 2020. He be then become the, became the interim director of quality and outcomes in August of 2021 and then was hired in December of 2021 as the permanent um, director of quality and outcomes for Alameda Health System. And so I just wanted to share that because I love the, the, the internal growth that we had here in our quality department. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. That is a great story. And uh, I know Mr. Reda and I exchange a lot of emails. So I always appreciate mm -hmm. his professionalism and how good he is at his job. So uh, the floor is yours, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, and again, thank you for that warm introduction. Uh, as Dr. Tornabene mentioned, um, I am the Director of Quality and Outcomes, and I'm here to present our QAPI, or our Quality Assurance and Performance Improvement Plan for the current uh, fiscal year. So our QAPI plan is, you know, regulated by different regulatory bodies. Um, regulation does require a quality program, uh, and bodies such as the Joint Commission have specific elements, which we then have incorporated into our QAPI, and therefore into our system-wide processes. Our quality plan describes the process of implementing quality and performance improvement uh, throughout the system. Our goal is to continuously improve processes to ensure the highest level of quality care in a safe environment. As equity is a huge topic, uh, we've considered it into all of our quality and performance improvement activities. Healthcare equity is a quality of care problem which needs to be uh, needs to have a similar approach to other quality and patient safety priorities. Well, first we have to understand the root causes 
And we have to make sure that these causes are addressed with targeted interventions. Uh, our plan for this will be discussed furthermore uh, within our QAPI. Some key activities uh, within our QAPI plan are to remain prepared for surveys uh, and remain compliant with any regulatory requirements. We wanna promote a culture of safety. We want to use event dashboards to track and trend uh, patient safety events. We wanna identify all possible failures using the FMEA process. Uh, we wanna also collaborate with the medical staff office to support provider uh, professional practices. Uh, we want to continue all of our infection control and prevention plans. We wanna adopt a just culture methodology and make sure it's implemented system-wide. Uh, we wanna always assure quality assurance, um, conduct root cause analyses for any patient safety events, especially Sentinel events, and learn using our SimLab, uh, using simulation-based education. Our governance structure defines how quality activities are made visible. And those key activities we discussed uh, report up through our governance structure, which is displayed before you. QPSC, this committee, is the overarching body which receives all the different QAPI activities. Various medical staff and interdisciplinary committees are also accountable for improving quality throughout AHS. And we promote this transparency by reporting out all QAPI activities through the designated committees and work groups. So we just wanted to display um, exactly how all of our quality assurance and performance improvement projects are made visible and transparent throughout the organization. Our primary governing bodies at HS include, of course, this committee, our Quality and Professional Services Committee, our Quality and Safety Committees, one for each license, and our medical staff, which is led by Dr. Tornabene, our CMO, in collaboration with uh, the Chief of Staff. Uh, and they provide their leadership and oversight using um, procedures such as peer review committees. And then of course, our executive leadership team, who's responsible for strategizing uh, system-wide improvement initiatives. Various quality initiatives are reported, again, through these designated committees by each department and work group. Selection of metrics. As Annette has uh, articulated for us, uh, the True North metric dashboard helps AHS strategize and visualize progress towards meeting our organization-wide goals. On an annual basis, the Board of Trustees through this committee helps identify the True North metrics, which are set system-wide um, and prioritize all of our goals each year. This is an example of our True North metric dashboard. Again, it helps us strategize improvements. Uh, we've adopted the Institute of Medicine's framework, STEEP, which stands for safety, timeliness, effectiveness, efficiency, uh, and patient-centeredness. And in 2023, the Joint Commission will include equity as one of the six quality domains, which is found within the STEEP methodology. Also included are metrics to follow physician and staff experience and sustainability. Measurement and performance improvement. The True North metric dashboard is our strategy for focusing on priorities and quality and patient safety indicators. We set system goals and targets, we analyze them, we structure areas for improvement. And then we have, um, of course, our HETI pledge, 
again, because equity is a huge uh, item that's new in our QAPI and new in many healthcare systems, we want to make sure that equity is proactively considered when designing any performance improvement projects. In order to assure equity is considered, we've adopted a table before you to help us ask the right questions. Again, because equity is a new quality domain by the Joint Commission, we're determined to provide care that doesn't vary in its quality due to a patient's personal characteristics, such as gender, ethnicity, geographic location, or socioeconomic status. These equity considerations will be applied to all quality assurance and performance improvement activities. Some questions we would ask are, what populations are impacted by the problem we're targeting? Are the target population clearly articulated in the aim statement? What inequities already exist? Will the test of change impact those most vulnerable? Do the target populations believe the project outcome? And how will the practices be shared? And we hope to use this table anytime we have a new performance improvement project. Current performance improvement activities include population health and care management, for example, all of our quip measures, prevention of hospital-acquired infections, prevention of hospital-acquired conditions, provider quality monitoring, such as OPPE and peer review, safety alerts, which includes any kind of incident report, complaints, grievances, compliments, and any environment of care concerns. Conducting root cause analyses, anytime we have a significant event or sentinel event, ongoing regulatory compliance, plans of correction, purposeful hourly rounding by nursing to improve patient experience, and reducing readmissions, which is led by our care management team. These various PI activities are currently in progress, uh, and all the outcomes are uh, regularly reported through QSC or any of the MedExec committees rolling up to QPSC. Our standard methodology is to conduct the PDSA for all of our continuous quality improvement. It's also our recommendation to all the departments participating in any PI activity. The PDSA cycle is our standard uh, when it comes to any PI activities. Within our quality and safety committee, we've scheduled a calendar of all uh, QA and PI work. Departments, committees, and work groups are scheduled either monthly, annually, semi-annually, or quarterly to report out any of the progress towards the metrics that they've chosen uh, to assist with improvement and quality assurance. This year, we've actually included all of our RCAs in our report out. Any RCA is followed up with at least four months worth of data that is um, identifying any action items needed to improve patient outcomes. Next is our patient safety program. It's one of the largest programs within quality. Patient safety program ensures that quality and the safety of patient care is accomplished through these following activities. Incident reports via our MIDAS safety alert system, early identification and investigation of adverse occurrences, sentinel events, near misses, or PCEs, potentially compensable events, collaborating with regulatory affairs, collaborating with our malpractice carrier beta, interval rounding, and consultation services. Our regulatory affairs program is also a huge part of quality assurance. The regulatory affairs program ensures quality and safety 
by assuring compliance with laws, standards, regulations, uh, managing ongoing reg regulatory compliances, certifications, licensures, following CDPH or Alameda County Public Health Department, the Joint Commission, and of course, CMS. They also assist with providing education, for example, survey preparedness, life safety provisions of care, and the environment of care. We would also like to celebrate all of our achievements. We've implemented the Quality and Patient Safety Innovation Award. This award recognizes organizational excellence within AHS that has proved uh, and improved compliance to any quality and patient safety efforts. This celebrates efforts of healthcare professionals throughout AHS. Some of the Patient Safety Innovation Awards already rewarded include the IT, IT Service Center. Uh, they've helped develop internal metrics, improved customer satisfaction, and call resolution. Our perioperative services department, they've improved patient safety outcomes by decreasing overall harm events. Quality analytics, they've assisted with enhancing our safety alert system to include EPIC interfaces, which will help us monitor, track, and trend using de uh, departmental dashboards. And then finally, our Highland Pharmacy Department, they were able to prevent sterile compounding dose errors and overdosages. Next to celebrate is our beta symposium, which occurred last month this year. Some achievements we've received uh, from beta healthcare are our quest for zero within our emergency department, quest for zero for OB, participating in beta heart, and promoting a just culture. Again, these are just some of the accomplishments that we'd like to highlight throughout our uh, development of quality assurance and performance improvement activities. And as you can see, Trustee Banerjee is right there in the middle. So again, this was just a high-level overview of our QABI plan. I wouldn't want to exhaust the committee by reading every single page, which is 60-plus pages of quality assurance and performance improvement activities and details. But along with Dr. Tornabene, our CMO, and Ana Torres, our VP of Quality, I'm happy to answer any questions. So you're on mute, Dr. Bouquet. Thank you, Mr. Reira. Uh, great presentation. If you put us back to full screen so we can all see sure. each other. Trustees, I'll open it up for any questions or comments for Mr. Reira. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to go. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Reira. This is an amazing, you know, just a compilation of all of the ways in which this is happening. And I can't say, like, huge thanks to you, to Anna, Annette, uh, Dr. Tornabene, I mean, just the focus, uh, laser focus on equity and to use those equity considerations. I know these were in some of our heady learning bundles that we had shared, but to see this actually being adopted and to see this be the uptick and just uh, this is, you know, transformative discussions and learnings that we are having over here. So thank you again for your work stewarding this process. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. I, I'd say this is a, a great uh, roadmap for, for helping the layperson uh, navigate, uh, you know, the, the labyrinthine uh, world of uh, quality. So uh, uh, my request, uh, which I'll work with Dr. Tornabene, is to get a smaller version of this 
we, we're going to be onboarding some new trustees in January or February. And I think this is the kind of thing which should be included in the packet. And quite frankly, I think some version of this should be included on the onboarding of anyone who comes to the health system, um, because I think it's a great roadmap for really uh, kind of walking the walk. So thank you to the quality team. Thank you, Mr. Rieta, for that talk. Um, with that, we'll close item E. Let's uh, close the evening with item F. This is a, a, a new venture, if you will, for our organization, this concept of service lines um, and, and how they're being developed. This will be led uh, by uh, Dr. Tornabene, Mr. Fratsky. Uh, I think Dr. Achilles Swarm is also listed here. I don't know if I see her in the room, but I'll give this to Dr. Tornabene. Uh, Dr. Tornabene, do you think we can do this one in about 15? Yes, I, I, I believe so. Thank okay. you. Uh, yeah, so this presentation was de developed in collaboration with Mr. Fraske and Dr. Killis Warren. So we are all listed here, though I'll be giving the slides tonight, and I'm sure I will be well supported by Mr. Fraske for any additional comments or context. So as background, uh, uh, we developed this presentation first uh, uh, for ELT. We shared it with our ELT colleagues and then brought it to the Medical Executive Committee. And then here, certainly we, we wanna share it uh, with the Quality Committee of the Board. So you can hear where our thoughts are, what our direction um, is regarding service lines. So first, let me start with the with the why. Why did, so as background, and I'll get into more detail on this, we actually had a pilot we developed a year ago for cardiovascular service line, but certainly let's go back to why did we do that? Why do we think we need to develop more? Number, and these, these are not in any particular order, so I'll just start with them as listed, which is around number one, we wanted to develop a design that mirrors how our patients touch our system. So in, in specialties, oftentimes, a patient will cross between the OR, the ambulatory clinic, the hospital, the interventional lab, and yet our organizational structure over the journey of that patient didn't mirror how we could support that whole continuum of care. So we wanted to work on a design that mirrored how our patients touch our system. Uh, that included an administrative, what we call, of course, you hear about the dyad approach, but a triad approach, meaning that we're leaning into the importance of that collaboration between physician leaders, administrative leaders, and nursing leaders. And so we, we certainly built that into the design. Uh, we wanted a design that allowed us to focus on, on a sp particular specialty um, in order to improve the care for patients um, receiving care under that specialty. We wanted to maximize sustainability of the service line in order to preserve growth for future opportunities. Uh, we wanted to have a structure which really, of course, aligned with our overall strategic plan, but really um, allowed development of a strategy for a particular specialty. And then we wanted to have a focus on data. And this uh, included equity data, quality data, and financial data. So a group of us came together and we started to, we started to develop high level criteria for the development of uh, specialty service lines at Alameda Health System. So as you can see here, uh, thus far, we're looking at specialties that include high patient volumes, high patient complexity. And when we talk about complexity, 
that might mean not just high acuity, but it could mean high need for care coordination. That do we need more navigation for patients because of patients moving between so many levels of care in our organization? As I just uh, stated, that the specialty does involve multiple levels of care across the organization, inpatient to outpatient to post-acute. And then there might be multiple subspecialties or services within a certain service line. So for example, within uh, the specialty of orthopedics, there's sports medicine, um, there's hand, spine, trauma, et cetera. And so we're looking, we're thinking through specialties that might have multiple subspecialties within that one um, meta subspecialty, excuse me, meta sub uh, specialty. So what might be components of a fully developed service line? So certainly we want to have a strategic plan for that service line, and it needs to be in full alignment with our AHS strategic plan. We would like to see dashboards created, uh, which are congruent with our pillars and really uh, uh, go into, as I noted, uh, dashboards that include finances, quality metrics, equity and disparity populations, et cetera. Uh, we'd like to, there to be a very clear organizational structure that we can share out across the organization. There needs to be collaboration between the, uh, between the leadership, the administrative leadership of the service line and physician leadership in order to assure recruitment. We want that partnership really for all levels of, uh, for um, uh, all levels of care within the service line. Uh, in order to introduce best practices. We want to work with um, staff throughout the service line in order to develop annual capital lists so that there is capital being planned for on an annual basis. And then uh, overall, a, a fully developed service line would have an income statement so that we know that we're managing our expenses and revenues over um, uh, our approved budget um, for Alameda Health System. So going down now to the service line that we have uh, in, that's been piloted over the past year, that is our cardiovascular service line. So about a year ago, uh, we hired our first service line director. This was our pilot, our prototype for a service line. Over the past year, uh, Julie Shu, who, uh, who used to work in finance and was hired internally in order to be our first service line director, has partnered very closely with uh, the two uh, physician leaders of our cardiovascular services, that's Dr. Marina Triliskaya and Dr. Sharam Arabi. And these, this is a list of both accomplishments and works in progress uh, by pillar. So under quality of care, that uh, the cardiovascular service line worked with the an Department of Anesthesiology in order to assure coverage for the procedural area for certain procedures. They redesigned their outpatient scheduling process. A new cardiology clinic was added at the Hayward Wellness Center. And this was done after a referral zip code da data from CHCN was analyzed to make sure we were placing that clinic in the correct location. 
we are redesigning and relaunching the heart failure clinic in order to better address the population needs. And I was just texting with Julie Shu um, before the board meeting, and she was also saying that we're looking into health equity data within the heart failure data in order to keep improving the care that we provide and perhaps um, decide on targeted interventions through that heart failure clinic. Uh, the cardiovascular service line obtained approval for a new electrophysiology program that will launch in 2024, and a quality dashboard was developed. For sustainability, uh, the OR is starting to be decompressed for certain vascular cases in order to go into the invasive vascular lab. A new procedure was developed, patent foramen or ovale closure. They hired a, a procedure scheduler for the cath lab to assure that that schedule is filled. And then they're developing future plans um, to assess the financial performance of the service line. For staff and physician experience, there's been expansion. We in fact have a new, that we're going to be recruiting for a new vascular surgeon with our partners at UCSF for next summer. And uh, there is also approval, as I noted earlier, of an electrophysiology physician that will coming in in 2024. And then uh, even within the service line itself, I understand that there's job growth, uh, um, there's job growth opportunities being examined within the service line. For community connection, uh, they're working on a warm handoff initiative, uh, meaning that when patients are leaving our cardiovascular care here and perhaps going out to, to um, external primary care providers, that there is that warm handoff. And then uh, they're working on a website. Um, so in order to uh, have a better um, patient experience for patients trying to come in to our cardiovascular services. Here's an example, as you can see that this was August data, but this is a quarterly dashboard that they're developing um, by pillar. And then this is also a dashboard on their non-invasive testing. So that's like uh, echocardiography, for example, would be under that. So all of this is in development. So where are we now? Step one was prototype launch and development. As I've shared about a year ago, we hired Julie Shu. We established a leadership structure. So uh, we have a committee that's developed in order to provide guidance to the cardiovascular service line that includes Ro Lofton, Mark Fatsky, Julie Shu, Dr. Mack, Dr. Triliskaya, Dr. Arabi, Dr. Swift. And I sit on that as well. And then ultimately we'll be also having the chief administrative officer of ambulatory once uh, we recruit that individual. And we came together in order to help provide guidance in developing the new service line. As you saw on the prior side, we developed some general criteria for the development of additional service lines. And then we have a small group of us that is coming together to really examine the data. This includes myself, Mark Fratsky, Dr. Killis Warren, Dr. Mack, and the future CAO of Ambulatory in order to review data that might help inform which service lines uh, we develop over the next few years. Once we develop uh, that priority list, so to speak, then we hope to roll them out sequentially over the next two years. So with that, uh, I will turn it over for questions. I don't know, uh, Mr. Fratsky, if you have anything else to add. 
Um, Dr. Tornabene, can you take us back to full screen? Yes, of course. I, I, um, Dr. Tornabene, I, I do not. I'll, I'll just make one comment, and that is the small group we're forming to oversee um, the service line development not only applies the criteria to which service lines might come up next, but we really believe that there has to be standardization and replication um, and scale best we can manage it as, as we roll these out. And we know something, there will be nuances where things are slightly different, but um, we really want to be able to manage um, appropriately the rollout of, of, of all these service lines. Trustee Banerjee has a question. Yeah. Comment. Yeah, this is so, so good, uh, Dr. Tonabene. Thank you um, to the team that put this together and just such a great um, consideration for all service lines. Um, again, I think, Chair Bukit, these are all like must have, must uh, learn for the full board because everything today, like some of these, um, should be things that you, you know, the full board should be. So we'll probably try to get the snippets of these recordings and share with the board to make sure that they do that. As the community-centered design advocate over here, I would love to see as you kind of roll and you design and you iterate that the triad changes to having a community person in the design, yeah, the administrative clinical nurse and also a community um, at some point in time, but like moving towards that for sure. Great, good Thank work. You. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Esteen, any questions or comments? No, I, I'm excited to see how these service lines develop. I think it's born of a great idea and streamlining things, making things easy to use for patients is always best. So I'm excited to see how it takes shape. Yes, ma'am. With that, uh, we will close out item F. That's our last presentation of the evening. Item I's, uh, sorry, I, item G is a very easy one. It's informational on uh, calendar and issue tracking. This is the last QPSC of the year. We will be dark in December and we'll come back in uh, at the end of January. Um, uh, trustees, any other issues for uh, issue tracking or planning calendar or, or the like? Just to confirm, we're really finished for the year. This, uh, we uh, historically, we've been dark in December. There's always work still happening, but uh, uh, we will be dark as a board uh, for December. And credentialing is going to be good. Uh, 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 yes, ma'am. <laughs> Right. Um, so, so we'll hear about that in, uh, we'll hear about that in close and we can ask that question again. Um, Trustee Banerjee, any other comments on, uh, planning calendar or issue tracking? Um, I, I would like to end, uh, the meeting with, uh, unfortunately she's not in the room cause she had to leave. Uh, this was trustee Jensen's last meeting. And, uh, we did this at the full board too, where we weren't able to see her again, but, I'd be remiss if we didn't do this. And I was trying to catch her right before she got off, but we weren't able to do it. Trustee uh, uh, Jensen has dutifully served this board and this health system for the past eight years. She uh, is the second most tenured uh, trustee behind Trustee Banerjee. So uh, she has served on every single committee of this board of trustees. 
and at one time chaired uh, the HR committee and the audit compliance committee. So we're certainly going to miss uh, her wisdom, her organizational memory, uh, and and all the points of discussion that that she has. So sorry that she didn't get to hear that. I told her we'd try to embarrass her in front of herself, but she she snuck out. I'll leave comment for uh, Trustee Esteen, then Trustee Banerjee, uh, sending good 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 wishes out to Trustee Jensen. Yeah, I wish that Trustee Jensen was here through the entire meeting on her yeah. very final meeting. Yeah, and she's also given so many years of service. So you know, just sending lots of appreciation and also well wishes as she moves on into a different kind of role in the city of Alameda. Yes, her service is much appreciated. Yeah, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, same. Um, you know, her tenure during her tenure, we've had like so many eventful times and she's been amazing as a board member and as a fierce advocate for Alameda Hospital throughout this time. We know that she's moving on to another role and so I know that though she won't be sitting on this board but we will see her advocating for services for the island of Alameda and for the communities and for Alameda County. So we will not have seen the last of her, I'm sure. That, that is true. That is true. Um, thank you, everybody. With that, we will uh, we have finished all the open session agenda items, and we will move into closed council. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The uh, Quality Committee of the Board will now go into closed session to consider those items as stated on the agenda. Everyone have a good evening. We shouldn't be in there too long, and we'll come back in and say good evening officially. So have a great night. Good evening, everyone. We've returned um, back from the uh, closed session. Council? Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The Quality Committee of the Board met in closed session and approved the medical staff reports. The committee took no further reportable actions. Thank you. And with that, we'll close uh, the November 16, 2022 QPSC, our last one of the year. Great job, trustees, for all the hard work this year, and of course, the quality team and our docs and our attending. So, that's our last one of the year. So everyone have a great night. Good night. Good night.